I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Aquaman. Legend has it that one day a new king will come who will use the power of the trident to put Atlantis back together again. This is the exact spot that Volko gave me my first swimming lesson. I already know how to swim. Not even close. You have to forget all the teaching of the surface world. Go deeper. Uncover your Atlantean instincts. He spent his entire life training. Training to be the best. My parents made me what I am. I am the protector of the deep. In this trident resides the power of Atlantis. In the wrong hands, it would bring destruction. But in the hands of the true heir, it would unite above and below. The time has come for Atlantis to rise again. We must stop him. And how do you propose we do that? By retrieving this. I already got one of those. Not like this one, you don't. The war is coming to the surface, whether you like it or not. Your mother always knew you were special. She believed you'd be the one to unite our two worlds. Atlantis has always had a king. Now I need something more. But what could be greater than a king? A hero. With us are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? And Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir. Now, this is a landmark in DC superhero movies. I know it's kind of an ironic uh, idiom to use right now. A C mark, if you will. Between 1978 and 2016, there were six live-action Superman films, seven Batman films, and then after 38 years, a Superman and Batman film with a cameo from Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, I, I think it's fairly well established that Wonder Woman was respected and known as a superhero, even without a movie to her name at that point. She should, by all rights, have had six movies to her name, same as Superman. But DC were frankly terrified of introducing any new heroes beyond their big two. It didn't work out well for Green Lantern. It sure as hell didn't work out well for Catwoman, Steel, or even Supergirl. But after Justice League in 2017 made the statement that this was a world with heroes in it, plural, regardless of how mediocre the final film was, they finally had to take a risky step. And in particular, it was this hero that they chose. Aquaman had been a running gag in Hollywood for years. It was a recurring joke film in Entourage. 
the uh, idea that a superhero who talked to the fishes and not much more tickled so many funny bones. Seaman, you and Swallow go get a sushi for dinner. <laughs> it's Sea Man and Swallow. Okay, Seaman, you guys head off. Fine. Swallow, come. <laughs> <laughs> no way he just said that. We now return to the adventures of Aquaman. Yeah? Hey, uh, can you uh, grab me another beer? Uh, yeah. Anything else? Maybe, you know, a TV guide and, you know, another another pillow for your feet yeah, or something like yeah, that? No, actually, actually you know what? Give, give, me like a, give me like a Dewar's and soda and, uh, you know, try to keep the salt water out of it if you could. Try, try, you know, it's Try to keep the salt water. Yeah, we're, we're surrounded by salt water. You know, I don't. It's, it's Look, a I, difficult. I know. I'm just, I'm just saying. Water. I'm just saying. Try. Yeah. To okay. Keep, yeah. I'll try. Yeah. You want me to wipe your ass too? Oh wow, that's a helpful tone. Yeah. I'm just saying. You know, you're kind of abusing I, your powers a little bit. I don't you think. You know, it's actually, a bit ridiculous. you know what? Actually, this is all time that could be spent getting me my beverage. Why didn't you invite me? Oh, to tell the fish to get out of the way? No, they figured it out. <laughs> nice one. These lobsters walked right up to the door. Anyone hungry? The Johnsons. Oh no! <laughs> and Johnson performed my bris. Cameron just offered me Aquaman. <laughs> yeah, baby. Good job. Got to figure out a way to get you off this mountain. We'll need you breaking your neck before you even start this movie. Are you kidding? We just got Aquaman. I'm raising the stakes. Ten G's to the first guy who gets down there. Ten G's? I'll give you a head start, turtle. Oh! <laughs> Since they want to know. You should get out. Can you at least point me to Atlantis? Arthur Curry. Also known as Protector of the Oceans. The Aquaman. I hear you can talk to fish. So, in an unusual turn, rather than upping the edginess and making a super grimdark brooding incarnation, pushing so hard towards maturity that the emotional age landed around about the 15, Instead, refreshingly, they just dropped the embarrassment. What they presented us with was a full-throated, epic, ocean-bound rock opera, doubling down on the crazy and exotic, taking pride in the spectacle, and imbuing the hero with kind of a sense of glory. It's a treasure hunt and an origin story and a Shakespearean royal ascension. It's a world where a giant octopus plays the drums, where the hero surfs on a giant seahorse dragon flanked by sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads, fighting with an army of mermaids and crab people, where Julie Andrews plays an ancient kaiju. This has more in common with Mike Hodge's 1980 Flash Gordon movie than it does with Man of Steel. Let's talk about why it's one of my favourite comic book adaptations. One of the best aspects of Zack Snyder being as closely involved with the DCEU as he was, which is the casting of Jason Momoa as Aquaman. It was many years before the Aquaman film came along. When he uh, cast him, it seemed like kind of a bro-y move, like we'll get this guy in. He'd been on Stargate Atlantis for many seasons, and then Game of Thrones, which pretty much got him universal dude approval for his turn as Cal Drogo. He'd also played Conan the Barbarian in what feels like a complete and utter failure to capitalize on this amazing screen presence. And he's so tough, and he's so streaky, cred that no one will be able to laugh at our Aquaman. We're going to get like a, a an Aquaman who fucks. And then as it turned out, Momoa was just this great big 
sweet-natured goofball that made this version of Aquaman not at all really like probably Snyder envisioned, but that he fits so much the better with this re-realized version, if that makes any sense. It's very interesting to watch this uh, in conjunction with Zack Snyder's Justice League. Just very clearly different presentations of the same character. Some of the some of the details are different, and you know, thank goodness that Aquaman came out unencumbered by having to hew as closely to anything resembling canon. But mm-hmm. he's a completely different person in most of the movie. Like we see his basically his gruff, grumbly exterior. That's all we see in Justice League. And the moment I fell in love with Aquaman was right after that first set piece when he's at the bar and you have the very obvious but very, you know, cute, you know, bikers who are, oh, maybe they're hostile. No, they just want a picture. And it's, you know, okay, that's fun. But then James Wan takes it just a little bit extra, you know, a couple extra steps. And he has that little photo montage of this is what happens when Arthur lets his guard down. (laughs) He becomes freaking great to hang out with. He likes most people. And that's just kind of like, here is his character. Like, this is his arc laid out for the rest of the movie in a short little visual presentation. James Wan is shockingly good at, at conveying visual information in this movie. Hmm. Whatever Atlantis' problems are, you're bigger than them. Atlantis murdered my mother. You don't know that for sure. Yes, I do. They killed her for loving you and having me. And you know it. Son, one day you're gonna have to stop blaming yourself. Hey, buddy. You that fish boy from the TV? Oh, great. It's Fish Man. What do you want? I'll tell you what I want. Can we get a picture with you? You're like a local hero, man. It would mean a lot. Whatever. All right, let's do this. Don't touch me. That's right, that's exactly right. I'm gonna go down here. There we go. Everybody smile. Yeah, I certainly love the fact that they made Aquaman a more affable individual. It's closer to, I think, the closest. Uh, version of him that like I've seen is like you know Batman the Brave and the Bold cartoon mm-hmm. where Aquaman's just like a massive himbo, just like <laughs> he's always he's always there for, up for a good joke. He's always trying to do the right thing and he's always looked to make a new friend. I also found out that in 2011 there was an episode of the Brave and Bold called Sword of the Atom, which featured the Curries of Atlantis effectively WandaVision as it reframed Aquaman's family as a sitcom. Ah, there you are. Evildoers, here I come. Arthur! Don't wait up for me, beautiful queen. Where are you going, dear? Uh, it's Tuesday night, so... Aren't you forgetting something? I don't think so. Gloves, boots, utility belt... Trident? Our anniversary? Uh, no! Of course not! It's going to be outrageous! What do you have planned? Oh, uh, lots of things. I wonder who that could be. 
Ahoy, Bat Buddy! What brings you here? On my anniversary! It's Tuesday, crime fighting night. You told me to stop by to say hello! Well, hello! And goodbye! My beautiful coral flower, you know I only go crime fighting in order to make the seven seas safe for you and our son. You want to try another one? Uh, please forgive me, my queen. I may have no head for dates, but in my heart, there's only you. I like they brought that sort of energy of... Yeah, this is this is a person who comes from a relatively small community hmm. and uh, spends his time with most normal people. He's the most normal. Yeah, after the Justice League that hmm. we got, he's the most normal person. <laughs> Even though normally that would be Clark Kent. Yeah, we've got we've I they, we got that version of Superman in uh, Aquaman, where hmm. he grew up as a regular pseudo-normal person, but it's never interfered in his life too much. Yeah. Mm. I think where he storms out head and shoulders in front of the other uh, DC heroes as presented by Mr. Snyder and company for me is that the it, it's in the way he relates to people and the fact that how this story is presented, it's very clear he learned that from his dad. Mm. Mm-hmm. The whole film's tone is informed upon by him. Effectively, he uh, acts as an audience avatar in, in that uh, he doesn't have airs and graces. He hasn't been uh, told he's going to rule the throne of Atlantis. This giant, crazy undersea world, um, we approach it in that with that same kind of incredulity as he does, only to then be charmed by it. And, and we'll talk about Atlantis in a bit, but it is a gorgeous world to really you know, embrace. And I suppose to a degree, his imposter syndrome that he's suffering from the entire film, also, you know, we as the audience feel like slightly alienated by how immense this, this world is as well. So um, he... He gives us some steady ground to stick with in a world where there is no steady ground. He has almost a Marvel-esque feet of clay thing going on that's not a million miles away from some of the the, the characteristics and the situations aren't necessarily the same. But it's just like some of the, the ways that he'll have to react, I guess, culturally code shifting. Um, between Atlantis and the surface is not a million miles away from some of the stuff they did very well with Thor, mm. but they're still very much playing in Zack Snyder's superheroes as modern mythology space. And, you know, I, I could go on for this, you know, a lot more, but I think Juan does a significantly better job than anyone, especially Snyder, in landing the Arthur is Arthur from mythology. We are doing it as King Arthur this is that that sort of legendary realm sort of thing. It is a modern myth sort of thing that would go... The particulars might uh, get muddy, but uh, the grand, the grandiosity of this story will get told down by, by probably kids in Atlantis and, and on Earth, because obviously I, I think most people would know the time when the Ocean Kingdom sent a whole bunch of 
crazy waves to destroy <laughs> our land for a bit. If you and it's not just Arthur. He's living in a world where, like, even random pirates will, like, take a moment to, here is your grandfather's blade <laughs> with our family crest. Like, it's <laughs> oh, okay. all over the place in just this sort of very exaggerated but still familiar sort of world. If you go back to uh, the uh, his appearance in Justice League, do you remember he had these pale blue like contact lens eyes, which sort of put a wall between you and him. He had this strange, striking look, and they've switched that around here to make them sort of dark, sort of hazily like orange. Mm, to, they're to, like a greeny gold. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the you know it ties him to his classic costume, but it also it makes him so much more passionate rather than drained of life. He looked like a fucking vampire in uh, uh, Justice League. And that's just so much just, just such a wonderful, tiny almost imperceptible design choice. Mm. A lot of the, uh, the shifts in look between his Justice League persona and his uh, Aquaman persona costume aside are quite subtle. He, he, I mean, obviously, he's Jason Momoa. There's only so much you can do with things like the way he moves mm. and, and stuff like that. But they don't change his hair. They don't, you know, there's nothing about him particularly physically that seems wildly different. But they let him smile. Mm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. boy, how yeah. does that make a big difference? Similarly, people were raving when they first saw the trailers uh, for um, Justice League about how much fun he seemed as Aquaman. That, yeah, yeah. and my man, and just those little bits. So, like, when I re-edited uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, I uh, actually had to reinsert the my man bit because it just felt like it was missing from that section. Yeah! This isn't the plan. No, Master Wayne. This is the team. Right ain't over yet. <laughs> My man! And the thing that got carried forwards was the coding that this is a fun superhero to watch because he has fun being a superhero. So all plot aside, whether it's I'm not gonna join your league, to this is bullshit, to I'm not worthy, when he actually does stuff, you know you're gonna have a blast. I think, again, that really builds into what the, the the story that they're trying to tell from right from the very beginning with Atlanta and Tom's relationship and how Arthur is the product of that. Mm. I think it's... It feels like the fact the that the re resolution of that, rather than product, yeah, just yes, using charged language. The, sorry, the resolution of that. The but the the fact that Atlanta flees the incredibly repressive circumstances mm. that she's in, and admittedly, yes, the sea kind of dumps her in his lap, but she pursues a relationship with a man who is gentle and nurturing and ultimately he's the one that she trusts with the safety of her son. She doesn't take Arthur with her when mm. she goes back under the water. She she leaves him with his father. And I, I don't think it's accidental. I mean, we found out from watching some of the behind-the-scenes material, apparently uh, Momoa specifically requested Tamira Morrison to play his that dad, particular yeah. part. But the fact that Morrison has a reputation that's built on playing tough guy roles, mm. and then they give him this, which is very different to that. And you see how uh, when Arthur starts to manifest 
typical frustrated teenage compounded by the fact that he's lost his mother and and doesn't really have a way to reconcile that but when his anger and aggression starts to come out it's it's channeled he's directing it at bullies he's pointing it at injustice people who are doing things that are bad generally speaking he's not an aggressive guy he he says he's a blunt instrument who solves things with his fists but actually no not really not unless he's backed into a corner and he has to um so that the fact that this uh, like you said about that scene in the bar um brendan that very deliberately diffuses that uh stereotype and mm-hmm. kind of reinforces the fact that having this two world heritage is exactly what makes arthur the person that he is and as is summed up at the end why he's the right one for the job in terms of mm. being the hero for both land and sea i do think he and thor would hang out well like just the, those two on the town we drank we fought he made his ancestors proud <laughs> it would it would just gel well those two together You know the casting of Christopher Reeve that just kind of was so perfect that you know from that point on when you just if you just quietly played the John Williams theme and just showed Christopher Reeve's face you'd be like well that's Superman straight away and um, Chris Evans with Captain America where he just absolutely epitomised him and Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark it just like immediately hammered home. I would actually put uh, the Aquaman casting here as almost devastating uh, in terms of how appealing Jason Momoa is. Just uh, like, you know, straight out the gate, they they know how fucking, you know, gorgeous and amazing he looks when he sort of like slams down into the sub and then slowly stands up and goes, permission to come aboard. Permission granted, sailor. Uh, I mean, is it hot in here? (laughs) (laughs) But more than that, he's of Pacific Islander heritage, which kind of like it really delineates this guy as being of the sea of the people who are of the sea so it is devastating to Aryan aquaman blonde haired blue-eyed that version of arthur curry as in the version of arthur curry who's been around most of the 20th century my ability to talk with fish is of no help wonder woman i think by injustice 2 he'd been fully cast i was like wow this this really is an Aquaman. And then when I went back and played it after 2018, I was like, this is not my Aquaman. So whenever I see him in comics, I'm like, well, that's that's not, that's not the old Aquaman that didn't work and that they couldn't get working in a movie. Where's the new one? Where's the one that actually works? That's practically who they cast as Orm. If you look at yeah. um, Patrick Wilson, he's not like... He is almost the spitting image of like Jim Lee's Aquaman from the the DC New 52 reboot with the shorter blonde hair. And just they don't make a huge meal out of the fact that you've got a person of color in an Atlantis that's very white. The majority of the people are fairly light skinned and they talk a lot about mixed breed and stuff like that. It's. It's not like a huge slap in your face or a thing, but it's very much consciously there. Hmm. And I, I feel like it had to have extended even to the casting with, you know, Patrick Wilson just basically, yeah, this is the Aquaman from the comics, but we're going to give you a much cooler Aquaman. And he's just going to redefine the look and feel of the character. Hmm. 
If anything, he reminds me of the uh, 90s Aquaman, uh, the one who had lost a hand and got a hook, and he featured in the 2000s Justice League animated series. It was episode 6 and 7, the two-parter The Enemy Below, and it was, in fact, Orm who forced him to sacrifice his own hand to save his son. And, and his hair was much shaggier. Yeah. And, and he, he had a beard, and he was like... Thor-like yeah, he was very Thor, and he had, had kind of like a uh, asymmetrical costume with partly armoured, and that... It seems like this is a, uh, a, a Polynesian inflected version of that, like, super badass version of Aquaman. Only, again, rather than just making him brooding and uh, making it great, like, look at the two different versions of Mira. The version that looks like she's had the colour drained from her whole body and costume and hair versus the one with the cherry red hair and this bright green comic accurate costume. And just just the, the the difference in approach. Like, doesn't she have a, a British accent for no reason at all in the uh, in Justice League? Her accent is a little bit all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I have a question because I actually don't have a straightforward answer for this one, and we don't necessarily need to dwell too long. But um, the question—it's a two-parter. It's how is this similar to the MCU movies? Because ultimately, this is pushing more towards what actually has been working at the box office throughout the 2010s, but also how is it different from the Marvel movies? And I think the second part of it is actually a little bit harder to pin down. Well, one of the ways that it's similar is is they're definitely still trying to ground the characterization and give you like a, not necessarily like, like I said, you know, they don't exactly do like Peter Parker and the Feet of Clay sort of thing, but they're still giving Aquaman like he's He's got some emotional baggage that he's clearly got to work through in regards to his mom and his family situation. And it's blown up to a huge scale, but it still feels like, you know, man, my mom left and I'm bummed out about that. And I've got this other brother with another family and we don't really speak. But the the difference is I think Juan finds this spectacular way to make it a a, a personal feeling film. Like it doesn't look or feel like any other comic book movie in spite of the fact that it hits a lot of the same sort of beats as a Marvel film, including the big slam bang third act full of CGI mm. and I fight a character who's the mirror image of me, but kind of bad. Mm. Uh, like if you look at the opening action sequence with Atlanta and the way it's shot and the way the characters are dressed and moved and everyone's fighting styles, like it's it's half like, wushu martial arts movie it's half people in suits sentai like it's got like a power rangers vibe in terms of oh, like yeah, yeah. people having to deal with this huge crunchy stuff if you were to say to me james one to direct the next power rangers live action movie hell yes it feels and looks very different just in terms of like like it's it's bringing you into a world like marvel feels like we're trying to bring marvel into our world but Aquaman is all about like, nope, this is Atlantis, it's bad shit, come on down. Whoa. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, the key thing is, it feels exactly like you said, uh, Brendan, that they took like the Sentai sort of way of viewing things of like, we don't have to ground things so much. Like when something, when the action like fight scene is going to happen, yeah, it's just gonna be, there's an explosion and now there's a fight now. And yes, that's ridiculous, but it's also, it's just fun for that ridiculousness to be the kickoff point for a lot of these battles. And I like the 
the camera work for a lot of the uh, fight scenes the way it's uh, that one shot rotating camera that that keeps happening it, mm-hmm. it it's it's such a stylistic uh, way to you still get to see everything happening and well keeping a dynamic view of the fight and I think that really stands out because uh, I do find because a lot of the MCU because more and more people have more and more powers it's it's closer more CGI or big hit sort of thing instead of like it's like the in-between like Birds of Prey and um, like the massive superhero fights it's there are the big hits and like people have super strength and everything but they're still being like knocked into a wall and bouncing back and someone's shooting a gun and someone's using a club or a makeshift weapon and it's that chaotic um like chaotic ballet that that they bring to it Mm, they concentrate enough on the practical that you get that balance Mm. between the cg powers and the physical stunt work that everybody's doing to make it feel uh visceral yeah I like what you said about uh, Marvel yeah. uh, bringing their heroes into the real world and suggesting, hey, these guys could be real. Like, obviously, that's what Christopher Nolan did with the with the Dark Knight trilogy. He was like, all right, if there really was a Batman, he'd be like this. And he grounded it so hard that Batman ended up uh, somewhat uh, underpowered relative to uh, the, the kind of th- stuff that he can do in, in comic books and video games and animated shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the later MCU films do, like one or two of them do in fact approach Aquaman. Black Panther in particular has that mm-hmm. level of majesty of imagine that this place exists. Because if you, if you look at the original Thor, they go, imagine Asgard. And you go, oh, okay, cool. And they go, right, now we're just going to go to New Mexico because it's silly, isn't it? Like, we, we sh- like there was all that whole Asgard thing, but that's all just a bunch of space fairies. So let's just get down to the real world and, and, and a much cheaper locale. Um, whereas this... Let's not go to Asgard. It is, it is a silly place. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, even in, uh, um, uh, well, uh, Thor the Dark World, was that them trying to make everything dark and grimy and fucking Game of Thrones looking. And it's like, that's no, yep. don't do that. Don't do that. And then Ragnarok, <laughs> for all its colorfulness, takes place mostly on a junk planet and, you know, run by the junkions. And, uh, but, you know, then they destroy Asgard at the end. Whereas this and Black Panther both say, imagine a kingdom that looks and behaves this magnificently with this level of technological marvel behind it mm, yeah one other but thing, that's one mcu film out of loads of them this is very true i think mm. one other thing that it, it does which almost seems to be taking the cue from the marvel films is that like you were saying uh, about the 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 villain being the dark reflection of mm. the hero but mm-hmm. here and i i kind of took this as to be uh, thematically referring back to the fact that everybody's surrounded by water everybody is a reflection of each other in various different ways so you've got reflections and mirrors between Arthur and Orm, between Arthur and Mira in terms of their upbringing and and what they've been taught, between Atlanta and uh, what's Orm's father called? Uh, Orvax. Keeper of Lighthouse. No, no, no. Uh, uh, Orm's father. Oh, right. uh, the, the one that she had the, the unseen, with. Uh, miserable patriarch. Exactly, yeah. His, like, his political views and her political views are, are kind of mirrored and reflected in mm. each other. But there's all these cross points between the various different people that feel like it's because you're looking at them through 
water you're getting reflections but also refractions and it just it makes everybody feel connected in a way that often in superhero movies they don't feel because these people are over here doing their bit there and these people are over here doing their bit and they're not necessarily interacting until the big clash at the end again that's why this feels shakespearean because it is like there there are a lot of large pieces moving about on this board and there's a a very important throne at stake Absolutely. on this one well it's arthurian well yeah yes literally <laughs> Uh, another like the other elements that it has in common with uh, Marvel, it's it's about a man child. Although again, um, it doesn't just focus on him being a man child and it going. Look, he needs to grow up, and he has daddy issues. He doesn't Not really the destructive have daddy issues. Man child. Yeah, he doesn't really have daddy issues. Um, he you know he's actually very comfortable with his his real dad, and he like if anything he should have a real problem with was it Ovax. Orvax, who from the sounds of it was absolutely thoroughly shitty to his mum, but like he never even gets name checked, really. Um, but it's it's got the humour, it's got the warmth. Those are a couple of things that were kind of missing from Wonder Woman. You know, much as we love it, it, it has that beautiful, similar to Black Panther look. Imagine a place like this. It occupies that middle ground between Man of Steel and Aquaman. It has that kind of, it's, 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 it's a serious story about a serious woman who comes from a culture of serious women. And, you know, there, there's a, a beauty there, but uh, there's also a slight length, like holding us at arm's length. Um, whereas this is like, yeah, we've got an octopus who plays the drums. Uh, it, it, it doesn't tell you that Atlantis is so proud you won't even be able to look at it. Indeed. I got a dress made out of jellyfish. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, there, there's so many fun little touches that would um, be, be well at home in, in other movie series that it almost sticks out as a part of the DCEU because, by and large, the rest of, it, the, the rest of these films do not have that much in the way of, of crazy choices like this um, which is good because another reason why it's not like Marvel is that Marvel are quite keen on connectivity and going here's a character from this yeah. film from over here and that we're going to be seeding another film that's coming on down the line here's a stinger for that this <clears throat> this is a movie that makes one throwaway reference to the fact that there was a Justice League and you could snip that right out of there I could <laughs> and then the, like the, the end stinger is like imagine if there was an Aquaman 2 and Black Manta came back and they had another fight what would that be like as opposed to teasing Shazam, which it would have uh, at that point would have, would have been the next one down the line. That's another reason why it's different. Another one is you pointed this out about the woman. I did, yes. Uh, there are female characters in this who are strong and capable and competent, and it's not because they were gaslit and traumatized and abused. <laughs> Yeah. There is yeah. <laughs> there is a degree of um, of of trauma and difficulty that Mira and Atlanta have encountered. Yeah. But mm. it is not on the same level as we kidnapped you as a child and tortured you into being a killing mm. machine. And it's it tends to be more in the kind of familial relationship your dad maybe didn't give you all the information about what was going on that he should have uh, in Atlanta's case she has a an arranged marriage she's not keen on and then a potentially political spat with her husband it's uh, there's kind of a bit of a question mark over why Atlanta is ultimately exiled after 
uh, Orm is born, we still couldn't work out quite how long after Orm was born. We had to we? check the chronology at this point. <laughs> like uh, when young Arthur asks, "Can I see my mother?" and uh, Willem Dafoe, uh, slightly de-aged, says, "Yes, you can in time." Uh, we were like, "Is he lying to him there?" And it's like, "No." If you check the chronology, by that point, she is still she around. is still around. She hasn't yet been banished, so yeah. it was at that point feasible for him yeah. to visit. But it's her. not helped by the age discrepancy between Patrick Wilson and uh, Jason Momoa, and the fact that it goes in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. From the sounds of it, uh, the, the the events in the lighthouse happened in 1985, making uh, Aquaman several years younger than Jason Momoa actually is. But Patrick Wilson is way older than Jason Momoa, and he's apparently several years younger than Arthur Curry. Yeah. Salt Waters playing Mary Hell with his face. Him. It's that lack of happiness, man. That without yeah. it in his life, it just aged him quicker. Yeah, Absolutely. his his dad yeah. messed up his head. Yeah, so it would appear, and the rest of him. Continue. Um, but yeah, so the uh, the the exile that she is then subject to and everybody thinks she's been executed because they've basically thrown her into the trench where all the creatures of the deep live and the assumption is nobody ever comes back from there so we guess they just get eaten. Volko initially says that it's because Orvax was jealous of Arthur and the fact that Atlanta had this previous relationship Mm. But from something that Orm says, it seems more like she was trying to push a political uh, viewpoint that the ocean and the earth should not be separate. They shouldn't be isolating themselves from the surface. There should be Mm -hmm. at least some degree Mm -hmm. of interaction and ambassadorial relationship. So she was effectively exiled for heresy. Yeah. Well, they say she was a traitor, but that would make sense if that was the the thing that he finally pushed her away for. But my point being that the the difficulties that she and Mira have experienced are not on the kind of scale uh, that Marvel tend to like Mm. to impose on their heroines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, actually there's a lot of strong female energy in this film. Mira, Atlana, what's the name of the uh, Kraken thing? Uh, they call it the Carathan. The Carathan, this giant kaiju voiced by Julie Andrews. I noticed while watching it this time, we had we have a um, OLED TV with a Philips thing called Amberlight, which sort of it throws a light show on the wall that corresponds with what's happening at the edges of the screen. So, for example, if you go through uh, the black hole at the end of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's going to throw up loads of strange colours as you're going through and sort of s- flood the TV with this sort of curtain of light. Because Mira is almost always shown on the right-hand side, there just kept being this lovely wave of red just coming away from her hair. And it's it's got this constant male-female energy going through it with Arthur on the left and her on the right. She is absolutely instrumental in motivating him forward and getting him to do the right thing. She's his Merlin. Even though Willem Dafoe's character is the one doing all the teaching, he then takes a serious backseat once Arthur's a full-grown adult. It's Mira who motivates him, who lights a fire underneath him. She's the one who finally brings him to Atlantis. She's the one that keeps him hunting for the trail. And as he falls in love with her, she becomes a vital link to his heritage. She personifies the power, the beauty, the wisdom of a culture he's always felt an outsider to. And as she slowly lets him in, that's what makes him feel part of this. 
And likewise, Arthur is instrumental in getting her to examine and shed her preconceptions about how evil and destructive humanity is as a whole. One of the tribes of Atlantis broke off and settled here when this region was still an inland sea. When the water dried up, they perished along with it. Perished? Yeah, that's terrific. We're getting close now. Oh yeah? Close to what? Dying of thirst? Close to getting punched in the face. Look, Fight Club, I know you're new to how things work up here. Why don't you look around? We are lost. You see that over there? Hey, what is that? Nada. This place is a wasteland. You're the one who calls this wasteland a home. This isn't my home. It's not like the whole surface looks like this. Oh no, of course not. You've also got disgusting cities whose sewers empty out into our ocean and whole mountains made out of trash. And oh, you've got great factories that do nothing but belch out filth and melt ice. Okay, okay, okay. And Point taken. Listen, yeah, we got some idiots running the show, but we got some good things too, right? We've got green forests and big mountains and beautiful lakes. You'd love them. They're like little baby oceans. Are you trying to provoke me? I'm just saying you cannot judge a place before you've even seen it. You've judged Atlantis on far less. She acts in a way that most Marvel heroines don't. You said that um, MCU ladies seem to have business face a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, they have this kind of... Uh, and this this reflects the fact that a lot of women have to do this in their everyday lives, especially in their work lives. But there's like this kind of... There's a pro face that you put on when you're going out into the world amongst people who tend not to like it when women get emotional about things. Mm. So any kind of anger that you feel, you will blanket. Any kind of passion that you feel, you will blanket. Not because you feel necessarily uncomfortable with it, but the people around you aren't going to let you... Um, do the stuff you need to do if you're going around having things like emotions. And that seems to be quite a common pattern amongst the the MCU heroines. But, uh, you know, uh, both Atlanta and Mira express feeling about things and they are uh, able to get quite big about stuff and, and have opinions on things that don't have to be delivered in kind of a deadpan humour kind of way mm. because that's the way that the boys around them are going to accept it. I'd say the closest female equivalent in Marvel is Gamora. But unlike Mira, she was kidnapped, gaslit, tortured, abused, and as a result, responds to everything with hostility. There's also the fact that with Atlanta, there is this huge Selkie energy going on. Mm. It's it's not quite the same as the Selkie story, which is the, the seal woman who comes up from the ocean and marries a human man, and they have a child together. And that, it's, it's all about kind of the, the child of two worlds thing. Mm. Though but, that prologue is very much like Song of the Sea. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. But the Selkie specifically returns to the sea just because she has to, because that's her world, not like it is set up in this case because she is specifically threatened and in particular her family is threatened if she doesn't go back. Between the hill, between the As a villain, 
Actually, I was watching it carefully this time, uh, and uh, I, I was impressed with the fact that the way they end it, rather than him um, like just ranting and raving about you know his massive plan. Firstly, to a degree, he's kind of right about how badly the surface dwellers treat the Earth, and how with two thirds of the world being ocean. Uh, his people should have the right to say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We're just going to go ahead and conquer you so that you can't fuck this planet into oblivion. Mm. It reminds me of Prince Nuada from uh, Hellboy 2. In fact, there's several elements of this that remind me of Hellboy 2. Now, Hellboy 2 is one of the uh, my favorite films of all time. So if any film reminds me of that, that's huge points. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, he's not an evil man, though he does do uh, underhanded things in order to uh, get power and retain power. And I love the way that it ends with their mother turning up and saying, yeah, no, we're done here. Like, you need to stop. And him actually stopping. There's so many ways that this is like the smartest possible version of an Aquaman movie that we would have seen immediately following the Christopher Reeve Superman, mm. because this is like a perfectly self-contained thing. And there are moments where it's like, oh, okay, I can see how it's tapping into some of the same, like, for, for example, I was terrified they were going to kill Aquaman's dad at the beginning of the thing, because mm. that would be the obvious, oh, well, you have a healthy relationship with your parent, they're dead now, go on a quest. Yeah. And and yet, um, similarly with Orm, Patrick Wilson is very, like, very exactly keyed into the right energy that this movie needs. Like a lot of the cast are really tuned into the, we're not quite making flash Gordon, but we're close sort of tone. (laughs) And he really brings that. So when he's like, call me ocean Ocean master, Master. it's like that works. But then there's also those, those little beats that he adds where he's trying to talk Arthur down before the ring of fire. Mm -hmm. And he's like, look, I don't want to kill you. Just leave It'll be fun. Or or like when he realizes that his mom is with Arthur and Arthur's like, when you're ready, let's talk. Like it just it just barely leads leaves the door open for not quite a Loki level sort of character, but not someone who's a million miles away from that sort of Mm. potential deaths. And it also underlines how thoroughly empathy driven this movie is. And Arthur's, like, heroic arc really is. Mm. Him always looking for the feminine, even though he doesn't know he's looking for her. He's had his mother taken away from him from a very young age. And rather than shut himself off from that level of vulnerability, he still kind of feels it. And then when he finds her again on the, on the, uh, the, the beach, there's that sense that he's kind of come full circle back around. Momoa does a really fantastic job of standing there like a ten-year-old boy. Mm. I think that search for the feminine is kind of key to what I think is one of the most appealing things about the way Momoa plays this character, which is that he has a self-awareness about him that is not... It's not that he's at the point of, like, self-actualized and he knows everything about himself and he's completely honest about everything about himself and therefore he has no personal inner work to do. It's not that at all. But he has a an authenticity and an honesty about him that gives him this foundation of the potential to be a good man 
that a lot of particularly villains but even heroes to an extent do tend to lack mm. that kind of they they don't know anything about themselves and you know you'd have to rip anything about themselves screaming from them because god forbid they ever uncover that level mm. of as you say vulnerability but i think the it, it comes out in the conversation that he has with mira about what happened with black manta and the the emotional rationalization behind i could have saved uh, Manta's father, but I didn't, and as a result, I made an enemy. That was a mistake, and I won't do that again. That's not some. That's not a, a piece of self-examination that you would generally see heroes doing. And I think it's really important and incredibly valuable to show this transition of him from open, enthusiastic child to still open and willing to continue to communicate hero and leader because ultimately that's what his leadership is based on it's not i'm the biggest man in the ocean and i can fight everybody it's not i can defeat anybody you put in front of me his power is about communication it's about connection it's about saying to these creatures of the deep i will defend you I will put myself out on a limb and, and protect you. And that's what makes him, to use the parlance of our times, the alpha. It's, it's not that he's dominant, it's that he is protective and followable. And he communicates that to everybody. Let's not use the alpha. Okay. It's based on flawed research. It is, and yes. it's used by some terrible people. <laughs> It's rare that I'll watch a film that's like, well, he's the king and he has special blood and this is all fine because, uh, you know, so often that is handled in, in a way that says, this is your birthright. You should be able to take this because you're the most powerful and you're the most powerful because your pair, your father was the most powerful and you've thus got the specialness in you. Again, Hellboy is one of the few that this applies to. But in the case of Arthur... His super strength, limited invulnerability, breathing and speaking underwater, ability to propel himself through water at insane speeds. These are gifts from his mother's side. As Sharon said, his true ability, the thing that makes him worthy to be king, is communication. The thing that we laughed at him for years for, the ability to talk, actually talk, to every creature in the ocean. When you think about how much ocean there actually is, that becomes an astonishing power. But it was clearly his dad who shaped him into the kind of guy who would actually use that responsibly. Which makes him one of the very few superheroes without daddy issues. Whenever decent parenting is displayed in superhero movies, it feels that much more significant because these are people who then go on to shape the world. And that does expand on the whole Arthurian side of things, the Arthurian legend side of things, because it, it sort of pushes this idea that there's, there is no ultimate power, that you can be a king, but then you could also be an emperor, and like Orm, he's desperate to be Ocean Master because in his head that makes him in charge of everything, and that's the top of the... The, the yeah. ladder that he's trying to climb. I mean, well, effectively, Patrick Wilson was working out to try and get as beefy <laughs> as uh, Jason Momoa. Good luck. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, mate. So, but yeah, that's the, the, the difference in their managerial approaches. He's like, <laughs> if I get these people to join by force and I threaten these people, then they'll have to call me Ocean Master. And that's why it's completely the wrong path each way. So what you're saying is, if I get these muscles, <laughs> then I get these muscles. If I, yes. 
<laughs> if I do enough CrossFit, then I'll be enough. I'll be in charge. Um, but yeah, the, the, the whole concept that political leadership is not actually about being the most powerful, that a king mm-hmm. is in fact the servant of the people, mm. not the, the dominant, dominator of the people. That mythology and culture are something that kind of should and do, if they're they're allowed to, boundary and control the amount of power that that leaders are allowed to have, because ultimately what they're doing should be in service to that. It's also a wonderful response to imposter syndrome, saying, "No, no, no you you're you're worried that you're not." anywhere near enough of the person that people are telling you rather than him arrogantly blustering in and saying i'm the king he spends the whole most of the film saying i'm not the one you want i'm not the one you're after and uh being assured at the end that you're of both worlds that's what imposter syndrome is it's straying from a place where you feel like you belong into a place where you feel you are unwarranted and being told you're in both places at once and that's fine mm. is the is that resolution that way of uh, being able to resolve that side of yourself absolutely and he's grown up in an environment that is very masculine but you're right about that pursuit of the feminine that that follows him through the whole thing. And I know we've discussed this before, the fact the group of people who ultimately lift him up to be this hero are the maiden, the mother, and the crone, the Carathan being the crone. Nice. Yeah, there's... He literally gets the magic trident in the presence of three ladies of the lake, uh, for lack of a better term. Like Sharon said, the maiden, mother, and crone are all there. And the film uses this this canny understanding of both when to employ and when to subvert mythology like the atlanta's whole fight in a in a standard like fantasy movie she would be a dude in fact this is literally the plot of the guy Ritchie king arthur film the lost king disappears and his heir has to go find kim instead and of course this this gender flips that but another way that it kind of like messes with these elements is like you said Sharon he uses his empathy and his communication to talk to the monster instead of the version of this that would have been made like 20 years ago where he just fights a giant monster and then wins because he's the king and then the movie's like oh well I'm gonna have my cake and eat it too he's gonna ride the kaiju into battle because that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) well what the key things that they do throughout the film is show that Arthur isn't the strongest. Mm. I think, as you said um, before, Sharon, like um, Aquaman is someone who he's very good because he's facing humans like normal people. So he's strong and bulletproof and everything. Like the first scene where he's against a full, his half brother, he gets his butt kicked because like he's not exactly the greatest fighter or anything. And when he comes against like the Kraken, one of the greatest, like strongest creatures in the deep sea of course like it would be futile to try and attack it and try and defeat it because that's not how the previous ruler of atlantis solved things it's the it's emphasizing that the key features that are needed for aquaman and to rule atlantis is that unifying uh, leadership someone who's looking to make connections not dominate and everybody through fear and uh, uh, oppression it's noteworthy, by the way, that just before that Ring of Fire fight, when Orm is uh, goes in to talk to him and says, just walk away, Patrick Wilson makes the decision to not look Jason Momoa directly in the eye once. Mm. 
He's standing right in front of him, and he's kind of looking through his nipples. He's just like his eyes have gone glassy, and he's looking at, uh, like you can tell. Orm is incredibly intimidated by this guy who he was told your mother went off and had this horrendous mongrel thing, who has now been on the news, like you know, saving boats and things from being uh, from from crashing. Now he's right in front of you, and I couldn't take my eyes off him. It's just. <laughs> At that stage, he's kind of trying to assert himself, but it illustrates how unready he is to really be a king if he can't look in the eye the person who intimidates him. I mean, he's expecting a mirror of the resentment or hostility Mm. that he has back at him. Yeah. Whereas, like, like, I don't know you. Why would I hate you? Yeah. You know, there was a time when I wanted to meet you more than anything. Get to know my little brother. Let him know that he wasn't alone. That we were in it together. If only I had known what a dick he would turn out to be. It cuts him to the bone, like... He Arthur loses that trident fight, but he wins the actual uh, stare down. Well, it's, it's, it's like a massive, like, ego boost for... Orm the entire time t- to the point where they even have that um that stat oh, yeah. con things before like a bit of extra propaganda it's just like why would you need to put stats against them but he just wants everybody to know no I'm I'm stronger like I'm supposed to win so I've rigged this for me to win anyway but just to let you know like I am the better person yeah uh, Arthur's stats are just like half breed drunk <laughs> he's not drunk right now uh, yeah. <laughs> But he's been known to be. I also like the uh, fact that during that fight, uh, we are effectively the audience around there. So when they, there is that yeah. sort of Matrix revolutions kind of boom, when they smash together and the water sort of flies out in a shockwave bubble and the entire audience just is speechless for a moment and then roars in appreciation. That's just supposed to be us. And this and, film did phenomenally well uh, overseas mm. as well. Like you know, in in a world where certain superhero films, like for some reason, bafflingly don't make money. Like imagine if the Incredible Hulk had ever made this kind of money. Uh, but it makes perfect sense if you look at, at uh, uh, what what sells overseas. And this incredibly beautiful, bright, shiny, blue, purpley undersea world that it just it sells itself. It and is beautiful. It yeah. really. There's a specific shot that is like one of my favorites is um, when Arthur and Mira are on the sh- on the boat and they're being attacked by the deep creatures mm-hmm. and just that that glowing red flare light and mm-hmm. then diving down into the water just like that is a phenomenal shot that still stands out just like it's it even in like a dark scene there's color being um, is the main focus point that yeah. lends everything a amazing light and atmosphere the uh film cost uh 160 to 200 million which actually considering how the scale of this thing that's relatively low like back in the uh, 90s they'd have had to do so much of this practically they'd have drowned several actors james cameron would have directed it <laughs> and he'd have screamed and sworn and throw thing thrown things while filming and he'd have reused footage from the abyss to cut the costs yeah. down <laughs> but it would this thing made 1.1 billion dollars this was not 
chicken feed. And I remember very distinctly when uh, I finished watching, I, 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 was, I saw it on my own before uh, I got uh, dragged Sharon along to see it. And um, as I stood up at the, well, as the credits rolled and um, the, that song plays, the guys behind me, one of them said to the others, that was the most awfulest film I have ever seen. No, that was the most worstest films I've ever seen. And I thought, you lucky sod to have only seen seven films in your entire life and they're all bangers. All better than this. Just like, how is this? I'm I'm sure some folks listening who have somehow managed to to hang on by their fingernails would entirely have agreed with this guy. But it's so appealing to me that the fact that um, it kind of sneaks up on you as a treasure hunt movie. Like, it's it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, about halfway through, suddenly we're going to the Sahara Desert, and you've got these beautiful, sweeping... Like I, I'll, I'll say right now, I have a weakness for any film that'll show the Sahara Desert. It's got those beautiful, orangey sand curves going up and down, undulating. It's, it's like there may be some correlation between the fact that I am enchanted by this desert and that algorithmic software can't tell the difference between shots of the Sahara Desert and naked ladies. But there is a mystical quality to this expanse of sand. It's an ocean, an ocean of sand. Yeah, and that blue sky overhead, and just the, the, the white of their clothes and the red of Mira's hair, it's just, it's got all of this visual splendour going on. And then they fall underground and find this ancient, deserted, hidden, vertical city that, again, reminds me of uh, uh, the Golden Army. And just the, the, the majesty on show here. And the, the world building that they're subtly, quietly doing, like, well, well, they take you to a new location. It's like, well, this is amazing. That rather than just saying stuff, like, you know, you know in the, the Snyder Cut of Justice League where they just report for a good 20 minutes about what happened with the mother boxes and like, well, these people buried it an inch deep in Epping Forest and these people, <laughs> that was the kind of world building where nobody cares. Like, no, no one watching the film really cares where the boxes were and who got the boxes and, like, there's no, no real building taking place but with this they're setting up various factions that make the ocean feel accurately like a world that exists beneath our world it doesn't surprise me at all that the sequel will revolve around the lost nation shrouding this in ancient mystery so enticing aquaman most definitely informed upon the way that i wrote panther soul which might be my best book i experience a burst of excitement and raptitude, a feeling I have come to define as a mixture of joy and fascination. When I go through this, I am at once here today and flowing through yesterday, walking among these peoples now long gone. I can see inside the world. I spot horned Capra up here, searching for patches of grass exposed by the snow-melting sun. Life atop desolation. We are through the charnel house and have entered a place where flesh and spirit meld. Dalesh passes me her untied end of the rope and I unbind myself, reeling it back up as we pace carefully down the last of the trail to the front steps. As I remove and stow my goggles, I can hear voices I know are not there. The great Zawan cats of antiquity are singing to me, soft, ponderous, rumbling, 
you you see what happens when some people try to give exposition an explosion happened a fight has to happen so yeah if you spend too long explaining things Everything an explosion will come along so. that is a bullet point on here there are Four occasions in this film where they're just having a quiet talk about something and they get what they need to get say get said established and then rather than just sort of end it in, well, let's move to the next scene, there is a big ambush attack and everything explodes. So in the lighthouse... And the trident could only be wielded by the strongest Atlantean and it gave King Atlan mastery over the seven seas. It made him so powerful that the ocean itself became jealous and sent a terrible earthquake to destroy Atlantis. Oh, down it fell to the bottom of the ocean. But legend has it that one day a new king will come who will use the power of the trident to put Atlantis back together again. Atlanteans turn up to fetch her back and it's not just a knock on the door they blow the wall in and there's a massive fight and it's just it's visually like swinging all over the place visually stunning and it tells us never get too cozy because you never know when Atlantis attacks at the summit when they're having the discussion about my lord you need four of the seven kingdoms to send an attack the lost nation and the deserters have long perished the trench are nothing but animals the brine will never join you, and the fishermen are cowards. Without me and my army to convince them, your plans are stillborn. As ocean master, you'll be commander of the greatest military might on this planet. I am the natural choice to lead it. Are you? What about the rumors that there's another? An Atlantic living among the surface. One of royal blood. You may sit on the throne of Atlantis. But you claim to just weak. How can you possibly hope to unite the Empire? My mother's bastard has never even been to Atlantis. His loyalty is to the sun. Suddenly a giant submarine attacks, which right on cue makes it seem like the surface are indeed a major threat, even though this was orchestrated by Orm. That's our false flag operation. On the sunken galleon, Willem Dafoe is sort of... And the king lived out the remainder of his days in self-imposed exile. Neither he nor the Trident were ever seen again. One of our archaeological teams uncovered this a few months ago. It's an ancient recording dating back to the First Dynasty. I believe it contains Atlan's final message to his people and the whereabouts of the sacred Trident. So what does it say? We don't know. The technology's too old. The cylinder bears the markings of the Deserter Kingdom. You must take it there and retrieve the message. The clue to Atlan's final resting place is inside of this. It's almost like uh, Arthur's, well, I suppose we've got to move forwards and the next thing would be to meet the king. So how about he just sort of comes and uh, captures us and we'll have a big explosion boat. And the fourth <laughs> one is to the point of madness. It's like, yeah. they've done it so many times now that for it, to, it, it they finally spill over into self-parody where yeah. they've figured out, uh, Arthur figures out the uh, the riddle of the bottle with by sticking it in the hand of, uh, was it Romulus? Yes. King of Rome. And, uh, and then Mira's like, oh, maybe you're not as dumb as I thought you were. Boom! And Boom. fucking Black Manta <laughs> jumps out. It's like, for fuck's sake! There it is. That's our heading. What? 
bad for an imbecile, huh? Not bad at all. <laughs> it makes you feel like no scene ends without an explosion. On the subject of exposition, though, because there is a flip side to all of this, which is that there are segments where they handle the exposition in the storytelling really well. The mm. transitions between uh, Volko and young Arthur and mm. Mira and adult Arthur when they go to the edge of the cliff mm. and you get that kind of, it does the circling round and it changes to uh, him as a kid and mm. then it circles back and it changes back to Mira and him as an adult. Um, that lets them intercut past and present and show the exposition of what got Arthur to this point and the stakes that are now calling him forward without one or the other of them dominating. And they do this a couple of times, and I actually think it's a really good tool. It's a really um, engaging way of, of telling the story. But you're absolutely right about the explosions. It almost seems like, okay, if, it's, if we're moving forward because of plot, we need an explosion. If we're moving forward because of... Um, world building, we need this uh, this subtle intercutting between different eras. Mm, mm. And never the twain shall meet. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, it, it kind of uh, it adds to the uh, the energy of the film. It's uh, oh, yeah. on my second watching. It is one of my, my favorite things about it that the first two times just okay that's a bit much but the third and fourth says oh yeah, i understand you're doing you're leaning into first. it by that point <laughs> um and the the filming underwater again back in the uh 90s uh, this would have been like impossible there james cameron again would have suspended his actors underwater holding their breath for five minutes and just kind of mouthing the words just so oh, that they God. could like he could convey it's underwater or they'd sidestep it by having everyone drain the room of uh, uh, like maybe they can't talk underwater so they have to like create an air bubble but again the, the the cg wasn't really there they could just about in 1990 create a liquid spear and mm. abyss still isn't available on blu-ray um but uh but to what they did here was like incredibly challenging, both for the uh, the actors and for the the director, because they had to effectively suspend everyone on these rigs, so their feet yeah. were hanging down, and they were sort of cycling in the water the whole time, and um, everyone's hair had to be individually animated so that they've got their <laughs> yeah. hair tied back and they've, they, they've got like CG hair added on that's floating in the water. That kind of makes you wonder, why do they even have hair being Atlanteans? Like it, it just seems like such a fuss and what, like it would keep drifting into your eyes. True, but it I could just imagine head warm. Yes. I could just imagine them, like the visual effects artists, could just like somebody put it there in a ponytail for a bit, please? Yeah. Anybody heard of a braid? Like, why, why is everybody here going to be floating? Can Dolph Lundgren be bald, please? No, <laughs> he's got to have long, wavy hair. Side note, it is kind of splendid seeing Dolph Lundgren, this craggy artifact of the 80s. The heyday of when big, muscly, barbarian men were megastars elevated to king status. Again, it gives you those kind of Flash Gordon feelings. Especially if you consider his opposite in the Rocky universe is King Shark, who I'd really like to see have a proper conversation 
with Arthur. Feels like Arthur would understand him a lot more than the Suicide Squad. But but that sells that they're underwater. Without that hair there, they're just mm. kind of, they would be somewhat inert. Yeah. Although and, at one point, I have to admit, I was watching the, like, the aristocracy of Atlantis and thinking to myself, so how did you solve the rusting problem? Yeah. Because they're all wearing metal armour. Mm. <laughs> The only uh, exception is Atlanta, whose swimsuit is made of fish bones and spines mm. and things. I also love the way that... Uh, they make Will- her very uncuddly. Willem Dafoe's character, Volko, says when he's like doing the thousands of years ago... Um, that story about what happened in the uh, uh, the deep past with uh, King Atalan. He, he was like, he said one throwaway uh, comment, you know, but the trident was was actually, it may have been our downfall, it may have sunk Atlantis, but it also was the key to our technology under the water. So it shows the the ruins of Atlantis sort of re- springing up and like all of these beautiful lights coming on. And it's like, you know, we lived down at the bottom of the sea and it taught us how to breathe underwater. And I'm like... There was kind of a time limit on that, like <laughs> about two minutes for everyone to learn how to breathe underwater while Atlantis is sinking. Also, you say... Or something. You say learn, like the growing mm. of gills is something that one can take and examine. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some holes in the uh, uh, the, the world building. It's fine oh, yeah. because, again, the film is extremely watchable. Uh, it's just that uh, when, when you're world building, it, it, you know, it, we're going to question things like Fantastic Beasts and we're going to question things like Ready Player One, for example. Like, Ultimately, if a film is boring you and your brain starts going, hang on, what about this? This doesn't make sense. Then the failure of the film is not that the world building is flawed, but that it fails to engage you. In the case of Fantastic Beasts and Ready Player One, Absolutely. With Aquaman, I had to actually stop myself being excited to question it. And the response of a lot of people was, this movie is dumb. But it's a film about how a beefy, self-blaming barfly confronts his vulnerabilities, makes sound, merciful decisions, and becomes a good leader. And he does this by listening and exploring and communicating, admits and examines his mistakes of the past, and he uses force only when he's being attacked, and he defers to the judgment of a woman who knows her shit. It's a story that prizes commonality over conquest, relating over competition, which doesn't sound all that dumb to me. that when I'm editing a show that I feel compelled to go back and watch the movie that I just watched and talked about for hours yesterday. But here we are. I'm now looking for Aquaman in 4K. It's two hours, 23 minutes long, and I never feel the runtime. It just whips. I'm not quite sure why Marion has really grabbed onto this movie in particular out of the DCU joints she's seen. But there, I, I've been watching this and just I was like thinking about the way Juan paces the movie and the way he shoots the movie. Like, I think he's a magnificent action director between this and Furious 7. Mm. I think he's genuinely like Ryan Coogler, great modern action director, 
there's no one who's like the new Spielberg or the new Cameron, but like Coogler and Juan are playing in, in roughly the same ballpark, I mm. would argue. Part of that is like, he's very good at making you aware of the geography, but one of the things that I was kind of tracking on my most recent watch is the emotional, like for lack of a better term, emotional geography of where everyone's at and where the story is at, mm. in spite of the fact that there's a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo about kingdoms and alliances and species and tridents and this and that and the other like there's a lot of bullshit to keep track of but it's really easy to track where everyone is emotionally and where their investment is in other people's emotional arcs mm. and everything just comes together very clearly and coherently in a big satisfying way and that seems like it's an easy thing to do but a lot of movies aren't great at it even if they're good at like individual component parts yeah one of the other things that I loved about the uh, the way they filmed it and made everything seem like it was underwater uh, was the particulates uh, added during the um, uh, the, the post production. Um, rather than it just being clear swimming pool water, there's sediment. There's stuff floating in it. It's kind of gross, but it's uh, that that um, and and the slight warping of people's faces as they uh, you know float underwater. Um, specifically, it happens to King Orm whenever he behaves in a twisted fashion. It'll kind of smear his face mm -hmm. to make him seem uh, more uh, nefarious. And there's one point where later on he talks to the King of the Brine Shrimp, who I think is John Rhys Davis, um, and his helmet frowns. <laughs> I'm like, is your helmet frowning? <laughs> Ocean Master. Yes, it, it can it can move like the brows on the helmet move in yeah. a couple different scenes. Yeah. But again, that's fine. It's Atlantean technology. Like you can hand wave a hell of a lot of this stuff. They do a really nice job with light in this as well, because this was this is one of the particular challenges that they found is that if you're showing a world that is underwater, then the light has to do things that it doesn't do in air so they did a lot of the filming a lot of the filming on set they would set up trays of water above the set so that the the studio light shining oh. through it would have that right that the right pattern the of, shimmering. of refraction and shimmering nice. when it reflected on people and they would use um, walls of different colored lights when they're filming the scenes where they uncover a treasure that glows pink or a um a, a squid that glows blue or something like that mm. so they had all of these different colored bioluminescent looking reflections on people's faces so that when they put the cg in the light would look right which is one of the things that we always pick up on with older cg one of the things that will give it away immediately the light the doesn't light hit their, uh, their bodies in yeah. the right way it doesn't bounce off the skin in the right way also the music of uh, rupert oh, gregson williams it's amazing It's got kind of a Mass Effect feel to it, but at the same time, it all feels linked with the ocean. It's all synth, but it uh, it has this kind of soaring majesty at times. There's a joy to it. Yeah. It's taking a little bit from Flash Gordon of like, you know, some of those 80s fantasy mm. scores. Like there's, there's definitely a little bit of um, DNA in common with something like Tangerine Dream's Legend score, mm. but it manages to feel of a piece with the world that it's presenting because Atlantis is so high-tech meets old fantasy. Rupert Gregson Williams is like, okay, let's let's use all this high-tech synth stuff, but let's use it to create like these big bombastic John Williams-esque 
and just like still really trying for these big themes and motifs that are very heroic and orchestral, even though they're not on orchestral yeah. instruments. It could, they could just have gone full Lord of the Rings Howard Shaw orchestra with this, and it wouldn't quite have felt the same. It would have felt like they were trying to make it into straight fantasy, but the synth is a filter for us that, that gives us that technological edge and that, that slight space of time displacement. Yeah, well, it, synth music has an element of what is to sound what refraction is to light, and mm. it almost feels like this is what this music sounds like filtered through the water. And then there's Black Manta, Arthur's big mistake. We barely uh, talked about him, but uh, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. He's a bit crap, and that's kind of perfect, because like he's... Uh, like to begin with, when uh, he turns up as this sort of exotic pirate on the ship, he, he fights with uh, uh, Arthur at, in Arthur's regular stage, and Arthur beats him. Because of how aggressive and shitty and backstabby this guy and his dad are, Arthur steps away and refuses to save them. It is one time of being cold and vengeful by proxy, and it was the wrong decision. But David's obviously been raised very intense and uncompromising, and rather than like water, versatile, he's like an iron spike, sharpening himself into a needle point of retribution, which sends him down a fairly miserable path of obsessive and fruitless revenge. So then later, when David Kane gets the Atlantean tech and makes his Black Manta stuff, like, for a start, like, he takes the whole thing apart and, like, like, sort of pours all that goop out and sticks his hand right in it. It's like, this stuff could be corrosive acid. What are you doing? And he's like, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. And then, like, he makes his armor, and you can go one of two ways with Black Manta. You can try to make him scary and go, no, he's not laughable, he's scary. Just exactly the way Deathstroke was positioned in that stinger at the end of Justice League. Just this armoured, brooding guy. Imposing, lethal, indistinguishable from every other brooding, armoured guy. Or you could just go the full Power Rangers route and just have him turn up and go, Haha, it is I, Aquaman! The blast from your past will take you out at last! And they've somehow managed to do that second one and kind of make it a self-aware version of self-serious. Like, he's Batman in Batman v Superman. But they've dared to make him look absolutely comic accurate. So it's sheer outlandishness makes him memorable. Again, rock opera, mm. rather than just trying to be cool, which again, plays into the fact that he's a little bit crap, and even though he schemes all the time, always unprepared for what he's going to go up against. Well, this is this is an element of what I was talking about before in that whole the, the reflection and mirror of various different characters, and this is the one between Arthur and David, is that they both have this... Uh, imposter syndrome. They both have this sense that they are not good enough for the role that their parental figures are casting them in. Even at the very beginning in, in his like entrance scene, his father is trying to push him to be the leader of this pirate gang. You're my son, you're going to be carrying my mantle, you need to start stepping up and, and taking uh, your position, take charge of, of this scenario. And he really feels uncomfortable with that and, and doesn't want to kind of grab that position. So that 
is mirrored, that, that kind of vibe of I'm practicing with this persona that I can't quite use yet, is really well reflected in the I'm practicing with this technology that I can't quite yeah, use yet. nearly blows his own head off several times. Absolutely. And then again, you've got the, the mirror of uh, Atlanta's sacrifice where she, she effectively gives up her life in order to protect Arthur and David's father has effectively given up his life mm. in order to force his son to escape because he knows that he won't leave without him. Pulls a Miles Dyson. The canny thing about the way they use that is they're doing it in for very different impetus reasons because mm. Atlanta's like, I want Arthur to live at, whereas Black Manta's father is like, I want you to kill that son of a bitch. Yeah, live and for you, vengeance. So you st- yeah, and so you have like both of these, and I would argue Orm a little bit. You've got these three men who have been without a parental figure in their life, mm. and it has clearly like affected them in ways that are like kind of freezes their emotional development. Like they're they're wearing shoes that are slightly too big for them, and they're trying to basically like make up for that in different ways. Like all three of like it's it's not given nearly as much time with Black Manta. But they're all three different Orm Black Manta and Arthur are men like trying to sort of like fill their shoes with different like, is this how you big kid? Is this how you big kid? How do you grown up? Mm. Oh, my goodness. You're totally right. They are all people who their immediate visual coding is this is a man. This is in, in specifically this is a man that society would recognize and honor for their masculinity and their musculature and their physicality and inside they're all feeling particularly lost and childlike mm. I love the verticality of the uh, of the fight in Sicily like when Black Manta turns up first they're at the very top of a very tall city he blows Arthur down a bit and then the next time they clash he blows Arthur down again like so Arthur spends most of this fight being blown through the air and downwards <laughs> And uh, again, like he turns up looking like a Power Rangers villain, but at the same time, they uh, Wan owns that scene, and, and with Mira fighting as well and d- doing her uh, wine bending in the end, like that—that's a really glorious moment. Uh, and just the, the 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 motion of it, and the fact that they're both going on at the same time, and the camera sort of robes between the two fights. That when they get down to the bottom, the first thing that Arthur starts really thinking about is people are going to get hurt. I've got to get them out of the way, and just using his physicality to just sort of like sh- to body that giant bell as as they're uh, uh, flinging about the place. It has. For a film that's, uh, you know, you would expect to be set entirely under the ocean, it has some amazing land stuff going on. Darkness falls and she will take me by the hand, take me to some twilight land, where all the love is grey, where I can't find my way without her. But I love that they uh, they set up that uh, place to begin with, and just sort of it becomes instrumental to Mira, who's always shunned humanity as uh, you know. To, well, we're not quite so bad because I mean, for a start, it's a uh, 
shoreside community that seem to be getting on quite well with the sea and mm. you know they aren't polluting it no i think it does it it has an impact on her to realize that humans aren't just like lined up on cliffs to throw plastic yeah. into the ocean that's not all we do every day yeah I loved uh, two other tiny little details, the, uh, the uh, design and the uh, prosthetic work on the uh, mermaid people, the, the fishermen, that royal family, again, seemed very del Toro. Sharon, you noticed there was an H.P. Lovecraft uh, book in uh, The Lighthouse at the beginning. Yes. It's all about the fish people. The... The fish fuckers, I believe it's called. The ones where H.P. Lovecraft was terribly afraid of crossbreeding with fish people. He has never been shown the beauty of mermaid art. The Dunwich Horror. The Dunwich Horror, that's the one. This scene also showcases the most beautiful actor in the entirety of Aquaman, that golden retriever. That is a good boy. I wanted to boop his nose immediately. Especially when he's a puppy, he has a little haircut. He's got a fuzzy little head. Um, also that Stingray is playing on the TV just before she uh, harpoons it. Uh, and uh, that was uh, a, a um, Jerry Anderson, a Thunderbird-style show, which always ended on Marina, Aquamarina, just a song about a mermaid, uh, which is sweet. And just that, that, like all, it was all underwater action. And I uh, used to love Stingray. I was never that big on Thunderbirds, but Stingray I loved. All right then. And it still uh, amazes me that we had so many puppet-based shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> puppets were doing everything. I just had a flashback of. Wait, what? There were quite a few of those, weren't there? Oh, yeah. Terror Hawks, Captain Scarlet. Terror Hawks was fab. Captain Scarlet was also good. Yeah. Back in the 80s, uh, puppets be our CG. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. I very much appreciate there's just a random island of dinosaurs in the middle of the earth and they don't give any more like expeditions to this like nope this is the lost kingdom there's dinosaurs here why not here's Nicole Kidman she's wearing monsters as armor she's awesome it is the that tone of yo man the, the sea's crazy man like there's stuff <laughs> down there we don't know have <laughs> you been there there could be dinosaurs down there okay also, do you want to talk about strange coincidences? In this film and in Ant-Man and the Wasp, they unexpected well, they find the mother of one of the core characters who's been off somewhere, like in the case of the uh, of Ant-Man, the quantum realm, kind of like and they uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. So you've got this aged, beautiful crone of a woman who once dated Batman because she was Catwoman, Nicole Kidman was Dr. Chase Meridian. And they're both mothers, and they're both battle crones wearing improvised armor after fighting, I suppose in Michelle Pfeiffer's case, carpet mites or something. So you get this beautiful, tearful reunion, but Randall Park is in both films. That's so weird that that happened in exactly that way, twice, within months of each other. 
real ants bugs life situation sort of thing yeah i mean randall park feels like he's just there so that he can be in a, a bigger role in the sequel in aquaman 2 which i'm really excited for yeah i think that if if we're going to continue with aquaman getting solo movies i think it's necessary at least for the moment to to keep bringing the energy that juan brought to it because I really think that he's one of our best big scale filmmakers. Furious seven should have been a complete disaster. Mm. There's no reason that movie should work at all. And yet it's genuinely good. And Aquaman, I think the reason that it works is because Juan had a very specific groove that he wanted to hit. And it turns out a lot of people really liked that. And so I want to keep seeing him explore it. If they're going to like, if we're going to keep doing more, more DC stuff, like, keep nurturing the filmmakers that are genuinely bringing something special to these characters. Yeah. Um, this is actually something that I'd been, uh, I've been wanting for many, many years. Like, w- while we were doing our shows, DC went from only doing Superman and Batman films and being afraid to show any of the rest of their rogues, ga- uh, the rogues gallery, their heroes gallery. We still haven't got a flash film, fucking RIPD cyborg film. Um, but like the, the, when they finally took the chance here, they banked on the right guy. They banked on the right team. And this version of Aquaman was delivered. And I feel like it could never have been this good until 2018. So it's almost worth the wait. It's just such a friggin' shame that they didn't, like, do a Green Arrow film in the 2000s. You know, just all of these other characters who aren't yet household names and are yet to be. Again, when they tried with Shazam, it really worked. And with James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, they finally got the actual application of what that comic should have been, you know, giving it to the right kind of person. Again, I I I feel that the DCEU hobbled itself as it entered into being with Zack Snyder making all of these decisions and David Ayers being so key and instrumental in their version of Suicide Squad. Wrong two dudes. They had a small group of guys in their creative team and they weren't bringing in other perspectives and other voices. And I think that's where they, as you say, they tripped themselves up a bit. And I don't necessarily think they they needed to pursue doing what Marvel do, but trying to always not do what Marvel does is a mistake. Because in this case, Aquaman kind of out-Marvel's Marvel, as we said, like it's, it's more of a spectacle. It's more crazy and huge and cinematic and, and, beautiful and colourful than most MCU films. It's like, it's maybe Guardians 2 has that level of, of, of grandeur to it. Not coincidentally, both Guardians 2 and Aquaman utilise red dragon cameras. It takes a special MCU film to hit these levels. They tried to get rid of me, but from ocean to ocean, they gonna have to deal with me. I've been overlooked, slept on, stepped on, left for dead Always against all eyes like Pac said I'm the living great Gatsby But these boys are watching quick and disappear like Banksy From ocean to ocean, sea to sea I'm something that you gotta see Gonna take a love to drive me away School of Movies is funded by Patreon. You very kind folks ensure that I get to keep doing this full-time and providing you with the best movie podcast we can muster. And we always give a special shout-out to our top-tier backers, who are this month 
Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Seahorse, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And speaking of aquatic life that can be ridden, I was pondering why Queen Atlana didn't try to escape from the underground savage land that she had been marooned in. You know, she's an incredibly strong swimmer, but it all comes down to the hostile life that surrounds her, the uh, creatures of the trench. I mean, there's thousands of them, but then there's this massive Tylosaurus, which almost eats Aquaman and Mira. It's just this unspoken gatekeeper, this sentinel that tells us why Adlana is stuck there in a way that doesn't depower her. And that is the same Tylosaurus, or at least the same model, that King Orm rides at the end. You almost forget that there's freaking dinosaurs in this massive sea battle. This one's going to take some beating in the sequel. I look forward to what James Wan and company have in store for us. So, that is going to be it for Aquaman for the time being. Before we go, gentlemen, can you tell the folks at home where they can find your best stuff? I'll start with Brendan. Well, you can find me writing at uh, Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, I spent entirely too much time and over 6,000 words writing on the five Roni Kenshin movies that um, released from like 2012 until the last two dropped on Netflix this year. Um, so I, I went on a a bit of an odyssey, uh, kind of obsessing about the, the comic book movies that people aren't talking about right now. Um, and then you can also find me uh, at normannerd.blogspot.com if you're interested in stuff like reviews of Suicide Squad. And I post those links on my Twitter at BLC Agnew. So you can get in touch with me there. And Jerome. You can find me over at Game Burst. Uh, we do a weekly show, a uh, new show on the Sunday. Uh, we're currently on hiatus, but we should be back uh, in a few weeks. And next week, unexpectedly, we have James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. It has been getting rave reviews across the board. Find out if it's that level of comic book perfection for me. Until then, I remain Alex Shaw. And I'm Sharon Shaw. And Aqua schools out. <laughs> <laughs>
You'd be much good for anyone, but that's so far from the truth. I know there's pain in your heart, and you're covered in scars. Wish you could see what I do, 'cause baby. Shoreline.